Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Color Authority. This is Judith Van Vliet podcasting out of Milan, and today I have a yet another exciting episode for you guys. I'm going to be talking to Mark Woodman, fellow member of Color Marketing Group, but also a dear friend of mine. Mark is a passion designer. He's a trend spotter. He's an educator, a writer, a speaker. He designs interiors, yes, but he also consults on diverse product lines. He contributes also to pages and the airwaves of media and different stages of international exhibitions. He consults for individuals and international corporations, including Korean Design, Midmark, Canadian Tires Premium Paint Collection, Blackfin Realty, and more. Mark's aesthetics understanding as an interior designer of the real life balances his approach to design, color, and product specification. He is indeed also former president of Color Marketing Group and serves on various color panels and is an accredited CEU educator. He's a spirited speaker, and you'll find out during my talk with him why he frequently lectures on color and design, and he has a very unique perspective that allows him to weave narratives and solutions of design and color from influences as diverse as the cuisine to fashion to home decor and transportation. Good morning, Mark Woodman. How are you today? And welcome to the Color Authority. Thank you, Judith. How are you doing today? It's good. It's a great day here in Sweden. So, and I'm obviously I'm good because I'm talking to you. We haven't talked oh. for a while, so I'm very happy for that. We haven't. I'm I'm thrilled for this opportunity and, and to be part of your your amazing journey. Thank you. All people get the first same question, and I'm going to ask. And I've had a zillion of interesting answers. I'm very curious to your answer to. That question, what is color to you, Mark? Um, it, it seems, gosh, I just think color is life. At least it is for me. I couldn't imagine a moment without it, without looking out the window and seeing what color the flowers are going to be at a particular time in the garden or opening up the closet and thinking like, oh, I think I'm going to put that shirt on today or heaven forbid, choose from a color of sock <laughs> to go with the shirt. But I just find that it's so all-encompassing all day long. It's, you know, and resides in language. You know, I use it to describe moods and foods and all kinds of things. It just, yeah, it's just without even realizing, I think it's just life. Yeah. Color. That's what you said. Color is everything and color is life. It's your yeah. heritage. It's it's so many things. And and you as a, as a designer, you're a stylist, you're a colorist, you're a writer, um, you work in fashion, home decor. You are what I would definitely say a true chameleon. I mean, no matter what you touch, you, you, you get to color it. Right. So, but how do you track, how do you keep track of all that's happening in all these different markets with regards to, to color? How do you do that? Actually, I'll, I'll, t- I'll go back and tell a little story. It was years ago when I was in a, di- when I was in a different industry in paint, in the painting industry. And they had brought in some public relations people that were going to work and branding people that were going to work with all of us in the office. And one of the questions they asked everyone is, well, what do you read? Mm-hmm. And one of the fellows in our office decided to be very high-end, which is true. And he, he named a slew of authors he likes to read. He just I spend all of my free time writing books. And they came to me and I'm thinking... Who has got the time for all that? And he says, what do you do? I said, I read every magazine I can get my hands on from Motor Trend to Vogue. 
And the lady looked at me, she goes, oh my God, that's, that's hysterical. And that's brilliant. She says, of course you do. So, so it really is. I, I wander the back lots of automotive showrooms and things just to see what the cars are and what, what's happening now. And, and then of course we know people, so many people in the industry, we can see kind of what's coming down in automotive or what's happening in fashion or what's happening in food. You know, is there, are we shifting, you know, have we shifted from molecular cuisine and it's kind of hard edged look to, you know, things that are just corn souffles, all this comfy stuff because of what we've been going through the last few years. So, and I think that comes back to that whole life thing. We drive, we eat, we travel, we have weekends together, we dress and how do all those things make up our lives, and our personalities. So I wish there was a really easy answer, but there isn't. And I'm always just connecting dots and going, huh, that's interesting. Moschino and Lagerfeld and Armani and J. Crew all have kind of done this and send this down the runways a year from now. So if we look at that a year from now, what will that do another year out potentially as it starts to filter into the world that we know as opposed to just being haute couture or a sort of higher end products? So just in clothing alone or fashion, where does that happen and where does it lead? And then watching the auto industry. It's real interesting in the auto industry right now. I don't know if this is, I think it's pretty much happening worldwide. It's certainly happening here. Is that there are no cars available. Uh, used car prices are 45% over what they should be generally. And the number of new cars, I've driven past a couple of dealerships. I was at one of my dealerships um, having some work done. And one of the men came in and he said, well, we just sold three more cars. I said, well, congratulations. He goes, we only have 20 on the lot to sell. Oh. He says, we, we can't get new car, new cars right now. And this is, and I'm not saying anything, you know, to be high and mighty, but this is Mercedes. These aren't cars that are, you know, good entry level. Let's drive it at 25,000 US dollars. These are cars that are 50, 60, $70,000. And they only have 20 left on the lot. It's, crazy. Astounding, it's astounding me. It's astounding me what's what things like that, what's going on. Um, well, what you normally see is the US market is normally fluctuating a little bit more. So it go, it's the first one to go down, but it's also the first one to go back up again. And Europe yeah. is a little bit different. You know, Europe may be more stable, but then it takes a long time before things get back on, on track. I mean, that's that's what we are seeing here. But you see affinity between the markets. So you look a lot at fashion, and then you just mentioned what you're seeing in the automotive industry. Do you see that there is a transfer of, of color and, and, and things that you do see on the catwalks, then maybe with a couple of years delay, obviously, you see that come back in other markets? Absolutely. Um, and I think they're sharing so much of it. So I know a number of years ago, Volvo had hired some interior designers. This goes quite a number of years, but it was great early on. Volvo hired interior designers to work with them on the interior lighting on the cars because they wanted a different sense of it. And then very intelligently, they hired women because women had a different sense of what lighting needed to be in the car. So I think they were the first, I can't remember if Volvo was the first or if someone else got the idea, but they put lights in the bottom of the doors. So when you open up the door, it illuminates the ground below. So you can see, am I stepping in anything when I get out of the car? Now I think men don't want to step in anything outside the car either. So not just, it, it shouldn't be a sexist thing, but women thought of the detail. Yeah. which is what I thought was really interesting. They thought of the details of, and they said at one point for years, the only, the, the little visor that comes down on the front window, the only light was on the driver's side. I'm, I'm sorry, the passenger side, because mm. it was assumed that only the woman, quote unquote, sitting in the passenger seat needed to look at the mirror and have the light on. And they finally said, well, we need to put this on both sides because it could be 
a woman driving the car and checking her makeup or, you know, just whatever you're doing with the mirror in the car. I, I thought, God, it took forever for that to happen. But it was this, at that moment, it was this crossover of automotive interiors and looking at residential interiors and having those sort of come together. And I think for quite a while, the fashion industry in a much shorter time period was able to influence home, especially in bedding and bedrooms, because you had so many designers started doing bedding lines. Mm -hmm. Um, Donna Karen, Ralph Lauren, Calvin Klein, Tommy Hilfiger, Armani, Armani Casa, Etro has lines now and it just went further and further and further. So the muse that would inspire them from a particular collection, they could almost immediately translate that to home. So you'd see this slightly shorter line, at least within, within their purview, within their world. And then it would trickle further from there. I mean, that brilliant scene with the blue sweater, the devil wears Prada, (laughs) which people in color and design, you know, refer to so often, but it really is, you know, how you see it here. And it starts trickling out to all kinds of different avenues. Um, And I think it kind of, you know, it's these affinities for what, from one another, Um, the whole term resimmercial that has emerged where residential interior design and commercial interior design have merged. Some of that interestingly came from commercial design in hotels. And that went up translating back to home with quote unquote, the hotel look and the hotel collection of the all white bed and lots of texture and getting rid of all the patterns and things we used to have for a long time in bedding. And it made that change. And that came from commercial design and hospitality. So it's very clear that all those markets, they touch upon on one another. And I think people listening to you right now, they understand the track record that you have and an inspiration that you are, just not, not to me, but so many within our industry, not just color marketing group, but also beyond that. So in, in the color expertise, why do you think you are where you are? And, and what were maybe key moments in your career that pushed you towards the now, towards the present? Well, there, I, I think some of it was just going to happen. I have, I had both parents were involved in design. Uh, my father was a photographer. Um, he was the original photographer for the postcards from Mount Rushmore in South Dakota. He was from there and did this beautiful photo- photographic work. And he was always telling me, and always, as I grew up, it was always, oh, look at it this way. Look at the, look at the composition over there in the distance. Look how that car is sitting in front of that house one third in. He was always just, and not as lessons. It was just these observations he made that would pass down. Oh, look at that over there. Is that interesting? My mom and her mother did the same thing. They just had these amazing sort of innate senses. They they sort of lived Fibonacci in a sense in their heads. And it all just kind of always worked. So, and I was always surrounded by it. They were always, you know, we were always looking at things and my mom was, you know, we'd be shopping and she'd put fabric in my hand and say, touch this. This is, this is what makes good hand and fabric. Now touch this one that doesn't do that. This is why you do this one and not that one. So I just grew up around it. It was, it was just, it was, it was life. It yeah. truly was life growing up. And it was wonderful because the three of us were always, you know, looking at these marvelous things and experiencing them. I had an, an interesting thing at one point, and I think it really started with a lot of the work I've done with CMG and also certainly with clients since I was watching a television program one day. And it was just before I started actually traveling and doing presentations and doing deeper research. And they were talking about window treatments. And the man turned to the other person and said, well, wood blinds are very popular now. And I sort of sat up and, oh, okay. And, and that's all he said. 
woodlines are popular now that he that he stopped. No and research, so, no information. None. And I was so, and I was I was actually talking to the television. Well, why? Tell us why. And on the back of my head, I knew that there had been a renewed interest in natural products, and wood was going to be a major part of that. And we liked the the warmth of it, and the brown tones were really rich. And I sort of had that in my head. And at that moment, I vowed. I thought never ever talk about what's happening in something without the backstory. There's reasons behind this. Never, ever do that. And I think that was, interesting enough, this stupid little infomercial in our local television was sort of a key moment for me at that point of saying, never do that. Always make sure you understand the reasoning behind it so that you can impart that on others. And I think it's part of what I, I don't want to say my, my success, my, my fortune, my fortune, my being fortunate, let's put it that way, is I, I like to try to educate people. I educate my clients. And in my interior design clients, I tell them everything I'm doing and why. Here's why this window treatment over a different one. Here's why this size sofa instead of this one. Oh, you'd like to have all off-white furniture? You have five children and three dogs. Let's reconsider that. I have, but people, they think, I like that. And you think, now let's pull back and, and look at this bigger picture and then think of what really works and what doesn't work and how we can incorporate that. Today, you, you can't explain what you're doing. And that is all about your research, indeed. And yeah. when you do research, and then obviously you don't research just about society, what's happening. You also then research the colors. How do you connect? I mean, you've talked a little bit about how you, how you see certain things happen in different markets and how you connect those. But how does it go from, let's say, a trend that you see, you go to a color, but then obviously next, always unless you're doing visual communications, is texture and application to, to certain products. What methodology do, do you choose within your projects that you have with, for example, people that want an all-white house? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned texture because that's part of it because it's never just the color. It's sheen level. It's texture. It's what the fabric is going to We'll talk fabric at the moment or even paint for that matter, what's it going to do on the surface? And I wish I had a method for you. And, I, and I've, it's one thing I've never sat back quietly in a room and said, okay, how do you do this? How do you sit back and go from step from point A to point B to point C? Because every once in a while it goes A to D back to B again, because I will, and it's, it's really, it's kind of funny because I'll, I'll look at these things like, oh, I'm like a dog chasing, you know, they, when they go the old thing, like, oh, squirrel. And all of a sudden their attention is not where it was. It's over there. <laughs> um, in design showrooms and you, you're kind of going in and you've got your idea, you've got things planned. And then suddenly out of the corner of your gun, I think this is the beauty of allowing design to be organic sometimes as opposed to purely theoretical. I see a lot of theoretical design that's beautifully laid out and it's all very nice. And it always lacks some tiny bit of soul. There's always some little tiny extra thing. That I think Gosh, if only that chair was angled instead of straight on. And God knows I do this in hotel rooms once in a while going, this chair just needs to be facing this way in the space just so it doesn't look quite so set. Do you move them? Oh, do I want to admit this? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine the receptionist is looking at you. What's this dude doing? Like he's changing the entire interior. (laughs) Very often you can relate to this as well. You know, we're not in a hotel often for one night, we're there for four, you know, three nights, four nights, sometimes five. So you have to kind of create this a little bit more of a living space. And I think maybe that's become part of the method is to sort of have the plan, know that I have to pick the following things out for us. I mean, I'm going to look very specifically at an interior design space, but I think it's even if I'm looking at 
exteriors. So I've just finished doing all the exteriors for some townhomes for a pro- for five properties in the Washington, Baltimore area. Um, and each one was different, but I had to lay it out. I knew I have to choose this and this and this and this. So here are the elements to it. Started working on those. What are the ones that I have the fewest options in? Because I can't move around those very often. So one, we had two bricks. Okay, I've got these two bricks. I have to work around those. And then I started eliminating the things that don't work with those. So then I see what I have left from that. And then you walk away and go, okay, is there something I can throw a curveball in with this? Or you walk through again, you, you know, you walk through the showroom differently. So I used to say this when I was um, doing design work, I would do, I would design displays for stores for our sales promotions and set them all up. And I, I, I learned at one point, and I would tell the stores, when you walk in your store, if you have the opportunity, the first day you, when you walk in the morning, what's the first thing you do? And they would say, oh, I count the tail or I start the coffee machine or whatever it is that they, they tend to do the same thing every morning. So don't do that tomorrow. Tomorrow, when you go in, turn right instead of left, look at a different part of it as your day begins and see what your day can do and how it can change. And I think when we're designing and when we're coloring, quote unquote, coloring, it's the same thing. You look and we can look and see that it all works in color space and oh, it's nicely balanced and maybe it shouldn't be balanced. Maybe I need to push instead of coral, which works perfectly. Maybe it needs to be a little more pink and a little less yellow in it. So it goes a slightly different direction. So it still plays well and it's still pleasing to the eye, but it's a, a, just a slight twist. You're moving away from what could be possibly a standard harmonization of colors that we've seen and that we've seen around. And there's some that are very interesting and they come back every other year. You know, there's the, just the typical sporty combinations, the classics. Yep. But yeah, sometimes you need to. So what you are doing is you're personalizing it and you are also personalizing it through your emotions and through your feeling, but just also taking a slower pace, right? So you're, because you're standing in that room and you're just looking at it and taking that moment before going just, you know, further, next, 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 next. And then you go full on after that. And I think you really, and it's so crazy. I think you really do feel it. There is, and as we, and when you do it for a long time, as I have, I think a couple things happen. I think you gain, the good thing is you gain more confidence when you when when you've had some successes when people are happy when they call you back and go i love coming into this room and by the way please come to another one that's always a nice thing <laughs> if you haven't done if you haven't done the whole the whole project the whole the whole space but even with a product line you know if you're just doing something very specific for a product line and looking at them and it's i had great fun i had the privilege quite a number of years ago with a different company we worked with 3m and did a series of post it notes based on cities so we wound up looking at sort of, you know, kind of what defines a city and elements of it. So the, it's a, they were cities. So we looked at the urbanity of it, but then also what else was there, the yellow, a gray, kind of a dirty gray, a lighter blue, and then a deeper blue. And it was actually, we'll tell what people are, but so you can see first, it was for New York City. So the grays were the buildings, but it's surrounded by water. There are beautiful, beautiful skies over the city of New York. And then the yellow went in for what was classically the cabs and the taxis. Because it's kind of like it's an iconic color combination for the city. And that was just a really fun project. But it was again one of those like you go in and you think, okay, here's what's iconic. Now where's the fun twist? Touching upon, we touched earlier on um, color harmonization. That's in any market is important, but especially in yours, obviously, working in interior, home interiors, residential as well, you need to be able to combine certain colors 
what and what do people need to look out for? What are like some basic lessons? Like, are there maybe classic combinations that always or often work? Because we know that a lot of people have difficulties not picking one color but combining them. There are. There's. They're all. There are some classics, although I find even talking about classics and interior very difficult because it's such an intensely personal space. And when people have, and it's really interesting, I find that people have a really, and this even in product design, um, since I work, I work with Korean design, we consult with them. Even then it's tough sometimes because you know what sells, but then you also want to have something a little new and unique and different. So you're looking at, you're looking at a different set of, of what you have to work with as opposed to someone in home where it could be like all bets are off. We can do anything we want, but I always find it very interesting. People find, have a really difficult time telling you what they love, like, or love in color, but they can very quickly tell you what they hate. So I sometimes start in the negative um, in that respect and say, what don't you like? What color just really, just really makes you want to seethe with anger and you see that. And they'll say, Oh, I, I hate this. I hate this. And then sometimes it's the color I try to use in a kind of a very subversive way, <laughs> or it's a version of it. What I found interestingly is that people, they'll do blanket statements. I hate orange, but they might love terracotta or they might love an apricot knowing that it's actually still in the family, but they had this, this orange moment. I had a very, and this happened twice, very interesting experience. And it was also a, t- a learning experience on color as well, certainly from a company I'd specified some paint, some paint companies. The, the clients were new to the area. They weren't familiar with the company. So I told them, oh, it's a local manufacturer, blah, blah, blah. And they said, oh, well, as long as it's not company X. I thought, oh, okay. And I just let it go. And I thought, well, that just seems strange. And I said, if you don't mind, let's go. I said, what was wrong? I said, did it not cover well? Did it, you know, did it did not flow nicely? Or and they said, no, it was fine. The paint itself was fine. It was just the ugliest blue we'd ever seen. And with their not liking their blue, they for, for forevermore completely dismissed an entire company and its products. Even though the product performed beautifully, they didn't like the blue. That was a huge, you talked earlier about moments, that was an aha moment. People actually think this way. And it, it happened like three times where a discussion about a company or a brand was based on, I didn't like the color I saw, so I just I just hate the company. I hate those cars, they have ugly colors. It's like, well, no, they don't. You saw one car and one color you didn't like. But it shows how important color is and how easily oh, people disregard a brand for using the wrong color. I mean, for using the that wrong just color. per se, like that, we need to do an advertising for just what you just said. It was, sh- it was shocking. So, but I wound up doing what a lot of times with clients, it was interesting. And, and a lot of questions would be, and this actually wound up going to a course that I taught for a while. People, I, you'd ask them if they, if you ask what's your favorite color and they'd say, oh, I really like this. I like this. And they may pull something out and they see colors that they like and they buy them, but they're not necessarily the colors they should wear in clothing. So they should not necessarily surround themselves in their homes with that either. Cause I find the house, a home space, it very much envelops you. And is really sort of like a big shawl wrapped around your coat or something. It really kind of needs to look, you, you need to look good in your space to feel comfortable. You need to visually look at it and see it as a client and like being there, but you also have to really look good in it for, you know, others saying God, because it looks like you, it's kind of a reflection of you in that respect. It's an extension. Yeah. Of your personality. Yeah. yeah. So I would ask, I said, go to your closet and tell me the piece of, show me the piece of clothing that always gets you compliments. And it's very interesting. It sometimes is not the piece 
that they say is their favorite color, but it's the one that everyone else says, oh my God, you look great today. Uh, and, and, and they'll often say, I don't know why, but everyone says, I, everyone says I look good when I wear this. I go, well, let's explore that color further. And then you start pulling versions of something like that. It may not be that exact one. You say, well, let's look at this range in, instead of this one. Uh, and then just kind of go from there. And it's I taught a course a while ago. I designed a course called Design Desires. And I realized it as an interior designer, just in that hat, when I wear my interior designer hat, that you would chat with people and we would, we would say, oh, we're going to design your interior to, to reflect you, who you are. What I started to learn and what was kind of another aha moment at one point is that people didn't really want their houses to look or their apartments or wherever they're living to reflect who they are kind of day to day. They want them to reflect who they are aspirationally. So it could be a man who maybe he's a CEO of a company, maybe very successful, maybe he is an office manager, but in his head, he's Indiana Jones. And he's far, he feels far more adventurous. He does really cool things on vacation and does. And so his day-to-day life that that presents is not what's kind of floating in their heads. So you have to kind of pull that out of them a little bit and go, that's the space you should inhabit in your spare time. Because we we really do kind of tend to take our our daily persona and our jobs, and there's and that takes so much of us. Um, and we are so much of what we do to live. But it's nice to kind of separate people from that and say, what would you re- what would you love to be doing? What are you doing in your spare time? And it comes back to what I mentioned earlier, that sort of wear, drive, eat, play, live. Those, so those words I look at to try to help define these, these personalities. Who, who are you aspirationally? Who, you, who are you really? Because we have different identities. Them? We have different identities. We're different as a, a daughter, as, as a mother, as, as a girlfriend, as a wife. But that's not necessarily who we want to indeed, just like you said, look back at when we're in our homes. You know, we don't want that constant confrontation. Yeah, it was a, it was an, another moment like, oh, wait a minute, we're pro- I'm approaching this all wrong. I need to to really give people something marvelous that when they come in, they go, oh, this feels like me. And that it doesn't look like someone came in and designed a space for John and Joan. It looked like John and Joan live there. The summarizing is just to talk to the people, to talk to the people you're designing for and get to know them. I mean, it's not about, of course, you know, client is king. I mean, always, they're always right. You know, that's, that's what we're taught from an early age on, but Getting to know them, but especially what's indeed, I think what you just said, what they don't like, that's an interesting question because I don't think a lot of people ask that. And I think from what you're saying, that that is very much key. So that's, I think that's very valuable advice for everybody who's listening. I And I love doing little little things. And these aren't tricky. I say to my clients, oh, you know, the garage door is closed if they have a single family home or if they're in a condo and they're, you know, they're parked in a garage somewhere. It's like, um. And it's really interesting because sometimes it just sounds like you're asking a question to be nosy, but I have a reason behind it. And, and certainly in some things, and you sit back and go, you look in the garage and see what they're driving. What colors did they choose? You know, how old is it? Is it new? Is it really super high tech? Is it easygoing? I find it interesting. People who have Teslas and people who have Prius as to use the two biggest, probably best known of electric vehicles for a very, for an ever expanding market or, or, or array. They're, they're different price points surely, but there's also a different thought process behind them because one is a little flashier. It's a little bit more of a, a buy-in for, for Tesla and the whole atmosphere of going to the mall and buying it, not having a standard showroom and everything about it is a very different experience 
than it is you still go to a Toyota dealership and buy a Prius and you're making a slightly different um, ecological statement with your Prius than you are with a Tesla, which is super high powered and a slightly different, I'm doing that, but I've also got this amazing iPad on wheels, basically, (laughs) that I'm driving. It's a different image that you're projecting and you find it important that you are projecting that image, whereas maybe a Prius driver is projecting, I'm more sustainable than you are, and that's about it. I don't really, I mean, it looks good, but that's fine. It needs to mainly be sustainable, but the Tesla world, it's the world that they are aspiring, you know, the world of Elon Musk. Yeah. Yep. And neither are wrong. And neither are wrong. It comes down to the person, but it's an interesting telltale. Like, oh, okay, they're doing this. This one's going to want maybe sustainable but high tech fabrics. This one I can just use organic cottons, and they'll relate to that better, just based on what they're driving. It's because they've made these conscious decisions. It also hints a little bit of budget. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, you know where you can go and buy your fabrics and where not to. And those are important questions. I find that's the toughest question that anybody asks, even if, even if you're consulting on a project. Well, how much is this consultation going to cost? Or how much is this sofa going to cost? Like Those numbers are all over the place. Um, I find that really difficult. The nice thing about that, what I find interesting, is that color has become the great equalizer. You can have, and that wasn't always the case when you think that colors at one time were restricted to certain people because they were very, very expensive to produce. And now we can, anyone can pretty much have anything. And then you look and go, okay, well, does it make sense on this? Yes, you can have any color you want, but what makes sense on the product, sense for your for your consumer? Well, it was interesting even with the, the, the post-it notes, you could only go to a certain value, a certain value of darkness because otherwise you can't see when you're writing on it. Yeah. So there are some of you like, oh my God, black would be incredible on this, but you realize you can't do black yeah, you paper. You need to have a white pen. A white pen or a metallic pen to write on it. Yeah. And that might that would be really cool, but people may not be willing to change their writing implements as they go through any type of sticky note. I think color indeed, I've talked to a few people in the podcast also earlier, color is expanding. A lot more people are aware of color. They're starting to get a little bit less afraid of color, but I think there is a big part that is part of this is the storytelling. And in the years that I've worked with you, you are one of the best storytellers that I've I've ever met. I mean, that's why you always have to write our PRs at at Color Marketing Group, (laughs) how you always end up writing the reports at steering, um, North American steering and describing a color, which also describing a color is key. I mean, you can't just say to your client, here's a blue and I'm going to put it on your walls and you're going to love it. Like they're going to be like, what's the name of the color? Why did you pick this color? How would you describe it? It's bringing them in that world, right? And that's where you are so great at. So the color description, the color naming. I mean, how do you come about those stories for, for those colors? You know, where do you find those inspirations for your color naming and selecting the right name also? Well, color, color, name, color name is always fun, as you well know. that. But And it's fun. It can be absolutely exhausting at the same time to 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 try to get it right uh, a lot of times when you're looking when you're looking at coloring it's like what's the origin of it is it coming from a place of nature of technology like why are we why why do we even have this color we're talking about to begin with uh, whatever the hue is so we'll say it's a blue and did this blue emerge from discussions because we're doing a highly technical fabric that's going to absorb light and be a solar 
collector of some sorts, but we've chosen this blue color because blue is now this great color of technology. Um, and then you you name it something different. Maybe maybe sunlight. I, this is going to be really simple. Maybe it's solar blue at that point because you think, oh well, this is what its function is. This is what's going to do. But it you're, it's not water blue. It's not sky blue. It's got to have you know a different edge to it. And you really have to look at all those elements to it. Um, sometimes so from where it came from, but sometimes also where you want it to go. Is it going to be a calming? Is it going to be sporty? Sky blue can either be relaxing and spa-like or it can be fresh and crisp and wet and kind of bold. You have two things in in one color and people see baby blue, you know, sky blue or baby blue or just this, this very pale value. And well, which where did it come from and where is it going? What do you want it to tell? What story do you want the color to tell? I found one thing really interesting with uh, people every once in a while, they, they won't like the, the classic name of a color, the simplification of it. You can't say it's purple or it's pink or it's blue and they'll react well or very negatively to it. And this is an old thing. This has changed as newer generations have become far more open, inclusive to all colors. To your point earlier, people are far more open to colors. There was a time where men, if you mentioned pink to men, they would just recoil in horror. You know, I can't have a pink polo shirt and not realizing that since our complexions sometimes are ruddier, historically, the pink looked really good on men and women really responded well to that because they looked, their men looked really good in pink, but I can't wear pink. But if it was suddenly, if it was food related, if it's raspberry or strawberry or, you know, some kind of dessert whip, or instead of brown, which at one point when brown really started coming into the marketplace, it was just a death knell because people went back and thought ugly brown suits and icky brown shag carpeting from the 1970s. But if it was cocoa or coffee or tobacco or a latte or any any number of drinks we have or chocolate or I remember, I think I actually named a color once 80%, 80% cocoa. And it was yes, this really did. dark brown going black. I And I thought, but it was, you immediately knew what it was and your taste buds were involved. So it was an interesting way of getting color involved in other senses. So if there's something that you can think of something that you smell and you think, uh, what's something uh, like pink peony, people can think of what it smells because we have really good sense. I'm smell is one of the things that stays with us for life, apparently as senses. Um, and you have a sense memory, I mean, a, a smell memory for almost your entire life from studies and you say pink peony they see it or they and they hear it but their brain says oh peony i know what that smells like and can kind of trigger something in your head and then right away it's like oh i can now relate to this because i have a relationship to this so i've always find food kind of amusing and it's also also how can go wrong uh blue apples don't make sense to people and you know have no i was just about to ask that question like are there color (laughs) names that completely destroyed a a product or branding like i mean just like picking the wrong color the wrong color name it's just yeah it's gonna make a project successful or not it can kill it and i also find that being too of the moment unless it's your plan when we're naming colors and I say we for all of all of us in the in the in the, in the business in the world, if it's too current and well, you I don't want to use the word fad because that's kind of what it falls into, but let's not do that. Let's say it's just way too of the moment. Mm-hmm. And then it dies fairly quickly because a year from now it's that whole moment was sort of forgotten and it's not important in the zeitgeist of what we're doing. So you have to look a little bit more long term. Certainly paint companies or products that have a longer life. They have to do that. If it's something that's coming out for the season, you know, you're doing 
a polo shirt and it's going to come out in spring and it's going to be put in the back of the closet in fall and it's not going to be reintroduced any further in the year. And you call that, I'm, I'm going to really simplify and you call that, you know, beach ball yellow. People get it, it lasts a season and then it's done and it's fine. Uh, if you expect beach ball yellow maybe to last five years down the road as a paint color, that may not work quite as well. Actually, though, I'd be kind of a cute name for a color. But <laughs> um, that's one of those, it winds up getting on, on a list somewhere. Like, oh, that was not a bad name for a color. Yeah. Okay, do people, do he's writing it down. He's writing it down. He's writing it down. <laughs> yes, no, do I do that. that. I have my phone yeah. full of yeah. um, trend names as well. So for me, sometimes yeah. it's when, so I was watching the David Attenberg movie the other day. Mm-hmm. And I just and and his his series on life on colors. And while I was watching, he was using words and descriptions and the names of the birds and the, the species that he was describing and that I saw on screen. And I was just literally on my phone, just writing them down, looking them up, all for color stories, color names, indeed, and, and, and anything, you know, if you're gonna do a story, maybe perhaps on indeed, yes, nature inspired. I was just like, yeah, writing it down just because I know I'll forget, you know, I'll know I'll forget otherwise. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because I also find that nature is absolutely our best inspiration. The color combinations in nature are just astounding. They are just so amazing. And every once in a while you'll look and go, oh, I wouldn't, maybe I wouldn't have done that, but nature did. So how could it possibly be wrong? What are color names that have stayed with you like color names that you remember um, either because of a good you know history like a good storytelling or just color names that you still you know are products that you work with there's there's one that does come through and it was a historical moment because i had the great privilege of working on some historical palettes um here in the in the u.s uh one for mount vernon which was george washington's estate the country's first president And I worked with the historian there to create a color palette. One was for the city of Charleston, South Carolina, and worked with the historic foundation there, and then created a side collection for the Carolina Lowcountry, not as historically based, but very much based on the living. It wound up, interesting enough, it wound up three individual collections within the full collection of the Carolina Lowcountry, because people live sort of in three different areas in the Lowcountry of the village, um, the marsh, and the beach. So that part, that topography is sort of split up the different areas. And each one of those had slightly unique colors and lifestyles that played into it. But I'm sorry, but back to that. So, and I bring these historical collections up because one of the stories was that. So in doing the research for um, the original Mount Vernon collection, the estate of colors, I had privy to just amazing things. And General Washington was quite the Renaissance man. I learned so many more things during that palette than I ever did in my history classes or my fifth grade trip to Mount Vernon since I live in the Washington area, every school trip. And it was an amazing, an amazing journey and looking at colors through the eyes, which you're trying to do. And this was really interesting. I'm trying to look at colors through the eyes of someone from 200 years ago, what they ate, what they planted, um, how they lived. Um, I also looked historically to make sure that none of the colors I was looking at were not used then. So it was very pure. The original collection was very pure to its time period. It's since been tweaked, I think, to make it a little more sellable. Um, but but the, at the, the original one, there were colors that would have occurred sort of in the time period in, in design. And then we had original, they had a formulas actually for the paint. And this is for a paint manufacturer I worked with. The company, um, or I should say the foundation provided an original formula to our 
color services group. So we, they ground and made the paint as it would have been made wow. at the time period. And then we match it. So what was interesting with that, it was a green for the small dining room. And when you look at it, it got very striated and had little bits of grind and grit in it from they were kind of, you know, grinding everything down. And that was still in the paint. So you would have had this stuff on the wall. But when you put on a spectrophotometer to look at the colors and read it, it came up with five or six different greens. And they came back and they said, well, we're trying to match this from this historical sample. Which one do you want? And it was interesting. This is when the science left in the human in the human element had to come back into it. So I, I put it on the wall and I went back and I, you know, squinted my eyes at one point and I pulled some full samples out. I asked them, I said, do these five. I said, and do drawdowns of these solid colors pulled from this. I said, and then we're going to see when we squint our eyes and go further back, which one of these, as those, as all of these different colors in this thing blend, which does it most match? Which does it come closest to when our eyes, when our screens, because our eyes are just, it's just the external part of our brain. It's the one, that part of our brain, when it blends those together to our brain to, to read a yeah. color, which one are we reading? And that's kind of how we came to that. The Washingtons or Mr. the general himself, General Washington, wrote everything down. Who visited, what they ate, what they served, how long they stayed, which dishes they used, which flatware oh. they used when the guests were there. It's, it's really very interesting. We don't think of that in American history of having that sort of type of renaissance moment for us, but it was great archives. So I was holding a Zhang Dynasty bowl. There are a number of them in the home. Um, they're considered the probably the most valuable things within the collection of the home. And they were used at one point, they were fruit bowls. They were used at one point when Lafayette was at the house and there was a big dinner and there was a record that they used the bowls for this dinner. And I'm holding the bowl in gloved hands, clearly <laughs> in gloved hands. And it was this most beautiful painting. And to simplify it, there was an inner and in, in lots of different colors on the outside um, design of the bowl and an inner rim on the bowl that was a a pale turquoise color, just this beautiful color inside the rim. I thought how marvelous that they painted the inside of the bowl too, just this one little bit of color. But I sat there looking at the bowl and I turned to someone, I said, isn't this wild? I'm sitting here 200 years later holding a bowl that was used to serve fruit to Lafayette and I'm looking at it for inspiration for color. The weight of the moment hit me. I, I, I felt like literally like, I like, oh my God, I just, that moment I realized the importance of what I was doing. And it wound up a color on the collection called Porcelain Edge, because uh, I just wanted to give it something simpler, but I wanted it to be sort of an inner secret. You know, yeah. I knew, you know, calling a Zhang Dynasty bowl, it didn't have a personal, it needed some kind of personal thing to it. Um, and it's, it, the cool thing is now it's on the palette. And every time I look at that, I know exactly where that came from. And you remember And you go back to yeah. that moment, you remember that. Yeah. I think it comes back to the storytelling. There was a, this entire moment and an experience that happened around it that made it really unique in my, in my, in my journey. And I, I used to spend a lot of time in Nashville, Tennessee, and was able to do a collection for the city of Nashville for, for the small one. Um, and they don't have a historical society of sorts for color, but I was able to help create a palette for them. And there's a place to eat, not too far from Vanderbilt University, but every time I was there, I ate there. Great coffee shop, cool foods. They're very pet friendly. They have bowls outside. Everyone walks their dogs. They stop there, get a cup of coffee. Dogs get a drink. They stand outside and chat. It's a marvelous local place. And it was originally a pet store. And with, I think, as I recall, it was Jones Pet Store. The, the original sign is still up. The neon sign is still up over the building. It's very cool. It's a little part of town. 
And then it was called Fido, which was they gave an homage to its origins, but opened up this really cool coffee shop. I wound up doing a coffee colored brown on the collection that I called Woof with an exclamation point as sort of my quiet homage to a place that I enjoyed going to when I was there and that I knew was a local kind of a cool little hangout. The amazing thing is that we had a launch party for the collection. People and the locals there, they came up and they said, is that for Fido? Because they knew the location. They recognized this coffee brown color. They got the wolf and it all kind of made sense. So there's a whole story about being inspired and there's a color naming story for you as well. So yeah, so those those are probably two that always come to mind and you know in a a blessed career that has sort of encompassed many yeah. and uh, those are two definitely two of your happy color moments right oh oh gosh yes gosh yes we had one i got to do a a surface color for Korean quartz and we had this beautiful aesthetic in quartz and i got and you will recognize this um, from italy and i had been there and i was able like i named it bianco dolomite because I've been to to the to the as in German the Dolomiten um, when we've traveled in, in northern Italy and stayed there and it was a beautiful moment and I was with family when we all, were all there and it was just so gorgeous it's just beautiful landscape and it was fun to so that one as well as simple as it is in this this relatively you know beautiful little aesthetic but able to go I had a memory of that and I now it's here this is this is every time I see that aesthetic I see the name come up. And I hear someone specifies it. I go, yeah, my uncle was on that trip, and my dad was on that trip, and because they've they're they're they've since passed, so I have that connection to that color name. Do you think that you've changed people's life, or do you think generally color can change people's life as through our work that we do in color? I absolutely think we can. I don't have the hubris to say that I do. <laughs> um, I would like to think that I do. But I will share a story. And this comes back, and, I, and I'm so glad you brought this up earlier about the storytelling, because it really is all that, and it doesn't come into that. So I had a, a, an absolutely delightful client that I've since become friends with, and I'm, I'm very fortunate. I, I do actually count quite a number of my clients as friends now over the years, because doing someone's home is a, is a relatively intimate it is exercise. Yeah. And I had this one person, we had been traveling, and we did the house. We came back from our trip from seeing family. And there's a voicemail. It was just after New Year's. And the person called and said, I just want to call you. I'm sitting in my new living room that you've done for me. I'm having a cup of tea. And my children have left to see their father because there, there was a divorce involved. She says, I'm sitting alone in my living room and I'm starting to well up thinking, oh my goodness, it's Christmas Eve and she's by herself because then that was the, the, the arrangement they had. And I'm so sad. And then she turns around and says, and I just wanted to call you and thank you because this house feels like mine and I'm having this moment in my place and I wouldn't have been able to do this without you because you've helped me transform this into a space that I just feel completely at home in. And then I start crying, <laughs> listening to the message because it was so overwhelming. I, you know, that so was you have so, changed her life or that moment, at least it you know, was, that period. Yeah. It was, it was such a heartfelt moment um, that reminded me the importance of what we do 
it's easy to go through and go, I, I know what I'm doing with this, that I think it needs to be here. And we can come up with a lot of our reasonings and it's all, you know, it's all gorgeous, hopefully. And it works in product. It either satisfies the client in the living space. It satisfies the client for their product. It does. Uh, oh, we've, we've seen an increase in sales whereas we changed and went from stark white to a warm white that registered with our clients. Yay. Thank you. You know, that, that was the right suggestion. But when someone says, my life is different now, my life has better because of that. And it reminds you, reminds us, I think it should remind us of what we can do for people's lives. Yeah. Um, that it's that what we do is important and that we have to always pay attention to that and never be flippant about it. And that perspective, um, where do you think the future of color is going? So, I mean, that's a bit of a, a, you know, two questions. Where generally do you think is the future of color going? But talking about how important it is to influence people's lives through color. Is that part of where you think the future of color is going? Yes. And I think it's it's difficult. And I think it's one of the reasons the stories is so important. When we look at trend forecasting, because we we like to say that there's no color that can't be used. But there are colors that have a period that help tell a story. And I mentioned earlier about you know something having a moment in time, and that moment may end sooner, but some moments last a while. Uh, a, a moment is not you know it's not defined as thirty five seconds or three days. It could be three years, five years. That sort of this this sense of a period um, continues. I think there's a couple. There's a few things on that. People's awareness of color has has expanded so much over the last few years. So they're more aware of its capabilities. And when they bring up, but, but it's very difficult for them who don't do this every day to understand the nuances of color. And I think that's maybe where the, the, the importance of color is going to start shifting for people is getting the nuances of it. It's not just blue, it's this blue and it's this undertone of blue. And here's why it's this, here's why it either works in your space, works for your product, or in a trend direction, why it's a lighter blue instead of a darker blue. And we've had dark blue, we've discovered the depths, we've gone to the bottom of the sea, we've gone to the far reaches of space. We need to pull back and take a refreshing breath which comes out clean and light and pale and clean, you know, almost clear. So, but it's still blue. So here's the shift in it. Here's the change in it. People are going to understand and we're going to educate and recognize that more than we used to. That is these little tiny increments of change that make a difference and make it more interesting. Um, and then, and then also realizing that those nuances can customize it for you. So we, you know, we say at color marketing, it's direction, not dictation. We're not saying it's this singular color. It's this, this hue and it's, it's, it's kind of its direction, but you may need to make it a little bit darker. Someone else may need to make it a little bit lighter, but its core is still there. And we do these little nuances of it to make it palatable to a product or to a particular to a specific project to make it work. But the core of it is still there. So we'll, the core for colors will be there. I think there'll be more of them because people will not say it's not just a time of a color. That's why we do more than one color. We, you know, we'll talk about, oh, here's a key color. Here's a color that's important, but it's surrounded by X number of other colors that are supporting players. And occasionally one of them comes forward and the, the most important color is a, is a supporting player to the other ones. So yeah. they move back and forth because life does that. The products do and, and color certainly does. 
And we're just now talking about nuance. And I think nuance is something it's it's really funny. It's always been an off-whites. And for the years I spent in, in, in the paint industry, so coming to a very specific product in design that goes on, knowing that there are so many variations of it and people just don't understand that. They have a really hard time grasping, which is why very often there'll be a ceiling white and here is decorator white. And it's just this one white color and goes, and everyone thinks, oh, it's, and I, there are all kinds of names, designer white, decorator white, you know, house white, and there are variations of it, but it's not a one-all fixes everything. I love, I love something called, that I like to call fake whites that they have a color undertone to them. There's something that exists in them, but you don't immediately see it. And if you put them against a pure white, you go, oh, that's, that's not a white. It's red, yeah, it's red, red or blue or yeah. beige or yellow or something. But if you put them with another color, then it looks white against the color. And then it's it looks more enhanced by them. They start enhancing one another instead of fighting one another. I find just very often this these kind of a ready mix plain cold white just winds up looking kind of dead. And there's a time for them. There's a place for them as well. There's nothing wrong with them. But I think we're going to realize more and more and more the the, the range of nuance we need just to talk about white. This is now what the third time we've talked about white in this I know, right. You keep bringing it up. I'm not bringing it up. You're keep bringing it up. But no, it's true. What I've seen of the last couple of years and all the forecasting that we've been doing is indeed the tinted white, Cindy, because yep. they play a lot better just in generally very highly saturated colors that are closer to the prismatic colors. They don't play well with others. You know, they, they have yeah. to be obviously the main storyteller and they can be, but if you then take a different nuance, you know, add a bit of gray, add a bit of black, add a bit of white to tone those colors down, you get a lot more possibilities that you that you can use. But that is for the experts. You know, everybody can pick yes. out a color, but yes. not to do that nuancing. And I think, and I think that's that's part of that's one of the wonderful things. I have a hashtag hire professional. <laughs> so and it's it's never meant to be flippant. It's meant to to get it right. You know, I, we, none of us, neither of us wants to, you know, I'm not putting my direction on people, you know, in any way, shape or form saying it has to be this because I say so. No, no, it should be this because of the following. And this is going to make it better. I, I think this is, it's a really important thing when, you know, sharing is one thing, sharing and teaching and then learning at the same time. So I think the biggest thing of color is getting a better understanding of nuancing and the nuances yeah. of color. And getting that out there, that there is a difference. It's not just a navy blue. It's not just a black. And, and I'll go the opposite of what we tend to think of as the opposite with white. I think of the nuances of black are just astounding. Yeah. And the color undertones they can have and how, how magnificent they can be and how powerful black is and how, po- how positive it is. How positive it is. I've always described to that when people talk about neutral colors. And there's a way of looking at neutrality in color space and defining it officially. But I think as a in a conversational and sort of in a design sense, any color can be neutral. If you describe neutral as something that's as a backdrop to something else and make other colors dance or sing or do whatever it is you want them to do, purple could be a neutral, yeah. depending on what you put with it and what you put in front of it, because it sort of takes that slightly neutral, non-threatening backstage position. Uh, so it's not always beige grays and off-whites that have become neutral. Anything could be. I think our uses for colors will going forward will help us define things as well. You mentioned um, we talked about textures and sheen levels that will play another role 
as we look at how things change. So for instance, I found, I've always found it very interesting. People will put almost anything with a pair of jeans, white lace, black cashmere, purple velvet, yellow cotton PK, and they'll throw in a pair of jeans and not really think a thing about it. You can't, you sort of can. And of course, denim and jeans comes in a wide variety of dyes on them. But for the most part, people look at their jeans and they'll kind of put whatever they do. And no one really questions the thing. Oh, you put that with your jeans? Because I'm finding that denim blue is a non-color in those respects. If you took that exact same blue and matched it and put it in velvet, in wool, in satin, in cotton, people would completely rethink what they were coordinating with it at that moment. They wouldn't, the textiles change the definition of the color for them and what they're coordinating with. I've always found that really interesting. And I've asked people like, oh, would you, if you had blue pants in the same color, would you put that top of it? Oh my God, no, no, this goes with jeans. Yeah. And that was another one of those moments like, huh, which I found really, really interesting. Mark, as a, a final, like a final advice, a color advice to the audience, what would be that advice that you want to share? Lose your fears. Don't just don't be afraid of it. And if you are afraid of it, hashtag hire a professional. <laughs> Call us. Yeah. <laughs> Call us. Yeah, exactly. Um, but but still don't be afraid of it. You know, just just keep your options so open because we tend to, we fall into the same, the same thing over and over and over again. It's comfortable, it's nice. Um, stretch out of your comfort zones once in a while. Uh, if you're afraid of doing something, do a room in your house you don't walk into very often. I love doing outrageous powder rooms because yeah. most homeowners never go into their powder rooms. They use their own bathroom. They don't use that one. So try something you know that you wouldn't normally have done. Put put color in places you wouldn't expect normally, like inside your cabinets or inside your closet. Yeah, you know, like just, a surprise element. Do, exactly. And, and, learn, and then all of a sudden you go, I really love opening my closet door every day when it's bright yellow. I would have never thought of that. It's so, so fresh. Maybe I'll put that in another space. And, but I think it's the biggest thing. It's, it's relatively, it's a relatively simple thing to change. So if you really do something and really, really don't like it, if it just doesn't appeal to you, yes, there's work, there's expense, but it's not a big to do, certainly in paint and maybe a little accessories. It's a different story, obviously, with your car. You know, if you decide, yes, I'm going to try a bright yellow car and think that was a mistake. I shouldn't have done that. Yeah. Uh, which is why we see so many silver, black, gray, and white cars because those are easy to live with. But I, I think that's that's it's one of the biggest things that people just need to fight their fear of it. There's so much joy to be had yeah. with color in your life that it's a shame to not let it in. My uh, dear friend's mom always says that life surprise you each and every day again. So maybe oh, that's a good a one for one. color. Yeah, let color surprise you each yeah. and every day again. Mark, it's been fabulous talking to you um oh. it's, it's been inspiring it's uh, it was good to see you and to talk to you thank again you. it was great seeing you and chatting with you thank you so much for the opportunity to share and and chatting with you is always is always a marvelous and it's always a surprise we never quite know where we're going to go in the conversation no but that's the fun part but i do hope that we're get, we get to meet again next year oh i'm still looking forward to that bless you and be safe and well and um and be colorful as always So this was Judith Van Vliet from The Color Authority. Thank you for listening again to yet another episode. If you haven't done so, please go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, review, and send us feedback on this episode. And I hope that you will be listening to the next episode coming out very, very soon. Thank you and have an amazing, colorful day.